This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do. Start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Equity Mines! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Incredibly excited. Both of us big football fans, as uh, our Equity Mates community would know, and it is for that reason that we cannot wait to get this episode underway. Long time in, in the making. Thought before we do, and I just reveal the CV of who we're talking to because it is okay. incredibly impressive. Former AFL player and captain of the West Coast Eagles, and Carlton, dual Brownlow medalist, six-time All-Australian, captain of the squad in 2008, premiership captain, Founder and current director of Jagged, which is an Australian sports apparel company, board member of the Carlton Footy Club, podcast host, video extraordinaire, <laughs> and investor in microcap listed companies. If you haven't figured it out, we have Chris Judd joining us on the show. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Gentlemen, very good to finally be on the show after a few technical challenges. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Third time lucky. We finally got on. So um, as as we just said, we're incredibly pumped to have you on the show and looking forward to exploring probably one of the sides that not many people know about you, which is the, the micro cap sort of investing in equities side of things. Uh, everyone knows you as the, as the football player. So yeah, thank you. Beautiful. Looking forward to the chat. So Chris, we like to start these conversations with a bit of an icebreaker, a bit of a game, if you will. Yes. It's a game of overrated or underrated. We like to throw out some, you know, indexes and some investing themes. There's no neutral weighted options. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we've spoken to someone from Vanguard who said everything was fairly rated. So <laughs> feel, feel free yeah. to go down that path if you want to. <laughs> yeah, cool. But if you're up for it, we'll, we'll kick this off with a game. Sounds good. So uh, to start with, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200? Uh, Well, I don't have a strong view, but I don't own any stocks in it. So I'll have to say by that definition, it's overrated to me. I assume this will flow to the next then, overrated or underrated large cap stocks? Yeah, I'll stick in the same boat, overrated. Yeah. Overrated or underrated ETFs? Uh, Well... It depends who you are, but yeah, I don't own any, so overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Do you own any gold, overrated or underrated? <laughs> gold, underrated. Okay. Why is that? Well, there's 
a huge amount of issues with fiat currencies around the world, namely countries are printing them like they're going out of fashion and, and that tends to not end well whenever that's happened mm. uh, in history. So underrated gold. So that answer might flow on to the next one, which is always a bit of a controversial one. Overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I could, if people understood it better than me, uh, I'm sure many would put it in the underrated category, the same as gold, but I don't understand it well enough. So to me, it's overrated. Do you own any Bitcoin? I, funnily enough, do because I got given some as a gift. Oh. So my brother-in-law loves his cryptocurrencies and I talked him out of buying buying a considerable amount before they went berserk, which was was problematic at family gatherings for a period of time. And for my birthday, he was good enough to give me some uh, some crypto. So I do technically own a small amount, but I, I didn't pay for it and still don't understand it well enough. To, uh, to so overrated or underrated the Australian property market? Well, look, I mean, sort of overrated, but gee, interest rates have never been as low as this before. So I own it. I'm pretty comfortable there, but it's, it's also incredibly expensive when you compare it to property markets around the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I am a big Sydney Swans fan, so I've got to ask it. Overrated or underrated, the Swans? <laughs> underrated. Oh. Great. <laughs> well, I'm a massive Essendon Bombers fan. Uh, overrated or underrated, the Mighty Bombers? Overrated. Ah. Yeah, that's what I've been telling you. <laughs> Come on. And then last one, um, you're still very heavily involved in the Carlton Footy Club. So overrated or underrated, Paddy Cripps? Underrated. Still got plenty of upside. Still a buy. Still a long. Yeah. Buy. <laughs> you'd go, you'd put your 100% of your portfolio in him. That's right. Yeah. So, Chris, as we said at the start of the show, everyone probably knows you more for all your achievements in, in AFL and probably less for what you're doing in the equities market. So, are you able to take us back and uh, talk us through your experience with your first ever investment and perhaps? What was a major lesson that you learned from that? Yeah, so my first ever investment, I got 1500 bucks from the AIS AFL Academy when I was a 16-year-old, and that was a huge sum of money for a 16-year-old kid. And I remember deciding that I'd invest that in shares. So I went down to the news agency with my old man, and we bought a share magazine and did some heavy due diligence working through the, uh, the recommendations of that, that share magazine, which, <laughs> which is an interesting way to pick stocks. And we ended up picking a stock, AWA, I think it was, which was a electronics manufacturer that I, I don't think, I assume, is no longer around. And that did well, which was just pure luck. And then we rolled that into Pazminko, which didn't go so well, which was a zinc developer at the time. And his assets, I think, ended up being rolled into Zinefex, which now makes up part of Oz Minerals. So that was the earliest exposure to equity investing. And so why was it that you decided to invest in shares when you had 15 bucks as a 16-year-old? I mean, a lot of others would probably go out and buy, I don't know, the PlayStation or Xbox or something, you know. Uh, 1500 bucks, not 15 bucks. Uh, sorry, <laughs> 1500 <laughs> 15 <laughs> <laughs> um, How did you have that mindset to invest in stocks? Uh, well, I think just greed, I assume. I wanted to buy a car when I was 18 and wanted a better car than what the $1,500 would buy me. Um, and my grandpa was a reasonably savvy investor. So I think watching him, and I reckon he bought News Corp shares when they were about 30 cents 
obviously a very long time ago. So mm. you can imagine the place that Rupert Murdoch had in his heart. So yeah, look, I think it was that modelling, and uh, I reckon my old man had just started a self-managed super fund at the time. So it would have been those influences that led me to think that this was a an appropriate course of action. Yeah, nice. So Chris, then you started your footy career, and I imagine you were extremely interested in investing during that time as well. So uh, how did it go, you know, trying to talk stocks in the change room and uh, <laughs> being interested in the market while you were uh, playing footy? Look, it was useful for some different reasons. I think what really pricked my interest was over in, in Western Australia. I really disliked reading about football or about, about me or about the clubs I was playing for. And in WA, you know, 80% of the, the sporting news is about the West Coast Eagles. So I started just buying the Fin Review every day because uh, I knew I wasn't going to stumble across any footy stories in it. So it felt like a safe space to read some news and and learn some things without having to uh, come across any footy stories. So that that was really beneficial, the early stages of investing. Um, It was a nice distraction from from footy and I was able to learn some some basic things about business. Funny, when you first start reading business stuff, you, you don't understand you know, a good chunk of what you're reading, but after a while it, it starts to sink in and, and things slowly start to make sense. And then when I was about 28, I mean, I started investing in things like BHP and ANZ and things that I don't know how anyone makes money on. And then when I was about 28, I started, I, I met a, a guy who's a really savvy small cap investor who's also ultra private. So we might just refer to him as the chair. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he really helped me I guess, formulate the, the strategy that I use today when investing in stocks. So, Chris, I've heard a story about you, and I'm interested to if you can confirm or deny it, but um, did you used to ban yourself reading the AFR on game days? Yes, that's, that's true, because I would sometimes... I like to be blank on game day when I was playing, to not really be thinking about anything. I found that if I was thinking about things, I was invariably playing bad football, and there was a time during the last uranium bull market when uranium was really on my mind, which would have been about maybe 2006, 2007, and I did find that during games, I was quite distracted if I'd been reading it, <laughs> reading fit, so I, that was banned on um, on game day, and maybe even the day before, too, I think. Wow. <laughs> there were a lot of rules during my football career, let me tell you. Well, I just want to pick up on that. You know, controlling your emotions in markets is incredibly important and not being able to do so can have pretty devastating effects on performance of your portfolio. And I guess remaining blank is probably not um, what you want to be doing when it comes to the markets as such. But how did you remain so, I guess, blank and focused on game day and block everything else out? I think I, I used to have some triggers that would really bring me back into the game when I was drifting away from it. Things around watching, you know, the centre bounce when the ball was bouncing and floating in the air, really focusing in on the ball and the way it was wobbling in the air and, and a few other things that would just sort of centre me and, and bring me back to what I and the team were trying to do at the present moment. Mm. But there, there are a heap of similarities, or I think there are, between playing professional sport and investing. And managing your emotions is a big part of it and you know, how you respond to mistakes. You know, so football is a, a game of mistakes. Even when you play the, the best possible game, you still walk off the field and you've, you've you know, made truckloads of errors during the game, but you, you haven't held on to them. You've been able to move on to the next moment and fulfil what you needed to do. And you know, my experience with investing is, is much the same. I, I make truckloads of mistakes. Currently, I make fewer mistakes now than I did 10 years ago. Mm. But even you know people ten times smarter than me are still making lots of mistakes, but they invariably don't hold on to them, and they make enough good decisions that 
they're investing worth worthwhile. So, Chris, you, you flagged it before that you have a particular interest in small and micro caps. And I don't think we've yeah. actually spoken to someone who has a particular interest or expertise in micro caps before. So, maybe if we start at, at the beginning, uh, how do you define both of those terms? Well, I mean, a, a micro cap stock to me is a sub $50 million market cap company. And then the smallest companies that are listed are, are shell companies. So they're the main companies that I invest in. But I, I'm not sort of – some people have like to label themselves a value investor or a growth investor or a, whatever type of group identity they want to assign to their investing. And I try to steer clear of that. There will be times that I buy you know, companies that have a half a billion dollar market cap if I think they're going to go up. But, but generally, by and large, my most comfortable area is sub-50 million dollar market cap companies. Why is that the case? What's so attractive about that um, sector of the market? Well, I think it's the biggest opportunity there for asymmetric returns. And you'll hear fund managers speak about that quite often, that they, they chase asymmetric returns. And what they mean by that is that a company can't go to less than zero. In terms of shell companies, they've, they've usually got an enterprise value of a million bucks. So if they've got nothing in, else in them and no cash, they're still really worth a million bucks, the fact that they're listed. So you could argue that's about as low as companies can go for a period of time anyway, assuming they can raise some capital. And the asymmetry comes from the fact that companies can go up by more than 100%. And it's much easier for a $2 million company to go to $10 million than it is for a $200 million company to go to a billion dollars because for a $2 million company to go up fivefold, they've had to create $8 million of value as opposed to 800. And that's a, that's a simpler task. So that's one part of it. The other part that I really like is that the counterparty or the people that I'm buying shares off or selling to generally aren't funds in that space. So if you look at investing as a, a competition between the buyer and seller, which essentially it is, I don't really want to be buying or selling off funds because they're smarter than me. They've got more experience. They're doing this as a full-time job. It's much better for me to be buying or selling shares to mum and dads that work full time, don't have the ability to go and meet management, don't have the time to do the work properly. And if they're the other counterparty, then I'm more likely to have a a better return. And so are these primarily companies that are all listed or do you also do um, off-market investing in this space as well? I occasionally do some pre-IPO stuff, but I really don't like investing in private businesses because as you can imagine companies that are sub 50 million market cap things go wrong all the time Mm. management aren't able to achieve what they thought they would things always take longer and require more money than expected so when you're in a listed vehicle and things haven't gone the way everyone hoped you've got the option to to sell out and move on to the next adventure but obviously when you're stuck in a a private business particularly as a minority shareholder you're, you're pretty limited in what you can do so i generally put a really high value on liquidity and as such, they're almost all listed companies. So you flagged there the fact that a lot of funds aren't playing in this space and there's definitely not a lot of research analysts closely watching these companies. I guess that makes the information gathering process a little bit more difficult. So what's your process when you're looking at these micro cap companies? What are the key things you're looking for and where are you finding that information? Well, it's, it's twofold. I guess a lot of reading macroeconomic newsletters because companies in that space, or often that I'm investing, are, are really concept stocks. So the importance around the narrative is really important. And then I'll have, I've got accounts with sort of 15 different stockbrokers. So they'll be sending through deal flow daily on, on capital raisings or IPOs. So often I'll come into the, the company through 
through a capital raising opportunity. And it's really just sifting through that and going in and sitting in on all the investor to road shows where the management are presenting their, their company for prospective investors. That's really the crux of the uh, the process and, and I guess networking with other investors and you know listening to what opportunities they're exploring. So how many buy opportunities do you reckon you come across a year through that sort of process, Chris? It's really lumpy. So I mean, I might have a month where I don't buy or sell anything and then I might have a, a week where you know, I might buy, buy four different things. Mm. So it's mm. just dependent on what's coming up and what looks attractive. And they're all at very different stages of investment. Like often I might invest what you'd term a gardening stake, if you like, like a really small, reasonably small amount of money just to get a position in the company and start to follow it a bit closely and potentially build some form of relationship with manager and the, the brokers that are the lead brokers in that stock. And then as you get more comfortable with how the company's going, you might increase your uh, your investment or, my, or you might just say, no, this one's not for me and, and move on. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, are you purely Australian focused when you talk about microcaps or do you look at microcaps across the world? No, pretty much just Australian focused. I've had some things that have been listed in Canada and some of the companies I'm in are, are dual listed. But essentially, the university is big enough here for me to, to look at and there's, there's very few markets where you can list, you know, as a sub-50 million dollar market cap company. You know, AIM over in London, you can list as a small company and the Canadian stock exchanges, but, um, you know, a lot of the, the companies that I would invest in would be classed as almost venture capital type opportunities overseas as opposed to listed companies. So are these companies even generating revenue when you're buying into them? I'm just trying to, I guess, get the distinction between perhaps a small cap that, you know, sub, a, what is it, 100 million or thereabouts. Where is that line drawn? Yeah, no, some are, some are generating revenue. Very few are cash flow positive. And there's a good chunk of mining stocks that are either exploring or developing. So obviously they're not generating any revenue. So I think the microcap world probably has piqued a lot of people's interest as you've been talking about it, because for a lot of people, it's probably not something that they often think about. So do you have any examples of companies that you've invested in or or didn't invest in over the years that are good examples of what microcaps can do and the opportunity for outsized returns that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I might not use any examples that I've done because if they were good, I'll look like a douche. And if they were were bad, I'll look like an idiot. I'd prefer to not look like either. But one that sort of makes me look like both, I'll, um, I'll throw up, which was so I, after football, I worked as an analyst at a venture capital company and had a good relationship with the CEO there. And he sent me through an opportunity to invest in Get Swift pre-IPO. And it was a, a pretty good sized ticket. You could invest pretty much as much as either of us would have wanted. And it was at, um, it was at 12 cents. And I did a little bit of work on it. I explained to him that I didn't particularly like it for a, a few reasons. And Get Swift then listed. It was a 20 cent IPO. Not long after they raised that money at 12 cents. And after that, pretty much exploded until it got up to four bucks in almost, I'm going to say it felt like a year or less. So that's a 30, what is it, a 30-something bagger. 
So <laughs> the dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fun, amazingly, the relationship's still reasonably good with the, uh, the, the CEO. I'm no longer working in the firm as, a, as an analyst, funnily enough. But um, I mean, GetSwift then ran into all sorts of problems and ended up they'd raised I think 70 million bucks or so. So they went back to cash backing pretty swiftly, and they, they had a few court cases and, and various issues that they had to and, and still are dealing with. So. And that's sort of symptomatic of this this space. Like, uh, I think you're really naive if you're investing in really small companies, you know, sub-50 million market cap, and you think all or most or even a lot of them are going to end up being real companies. But it's not naive to think that there'll be, you know, X number of milestones in the next six months or the next 12 months that those companies can reach that get them re-rated. And that's when you need to look at if there's some liquidity trying to sell out um, as opposed to holding on for the dream. So, I mean, that's what venture capital investing is. You, you, people come in at Series A and the company will have a set number of milestones that they want to hit before they raise money at a Series B round at a higher valuation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But the difference is in in VC land, people can't sell out along that way as an mm. investor, mm. whereas you can with, with listed equity. So I like what I do and it's it's good for me because it's my job and I can spend a lot of time doing it. If you don't have the luxury of time to be able to do it properly, I don't think it's a good place for people to invest. If you do and, and you, you've really got a, a heap of time to dedicate to it and, and are prepared to take a huge amount of risk, then go for it. So, Chris, one of the words of wisdom that we often hear and read about in, uh, I mean, investing more broadly is, you know, let your winners run and and cut your losses. Don't hold on to them. Yeah. Let's use GetSwift as, as an example, looking at the stock chart here and you're right, IPO'd and then jumped to three bucks, fell down again a bit uh, towards the end of November and then, yes, yeah, spiked up to four and then absolutely fell off a cliff. If you were holding... Get Swift during that period of, I guess, rapid growth. How do you think about exiting, or do you just let it run and then you're off a cliff? <laughs> no, well, yeah, but I mean, that's that's what gave me a bit of comfort in that is because I didn't love the story. Even if I had invested in it at twelve, I would have been gone at twenty or twenty-five, or oh, you right. know, I, don't, I would have held on for that long. Not because I don't agree with the sentiment as to let your winners run. But for me, it's let you winners run if you've got a really clear understanding of where they're going. Yeah. And they can go higher. It's not just an automatic rule. But for me, yeah, I'd echo those sentiments. So I lose on 52% of the things I invest in. I make good returns. I'm pleased with with the overall outcomes because the winners are, are bigger than the losers. That's a really important concept. And even Buffett, I mean, I think Buffett hits on, is it 57% or 60% of the time? Yeah. So, I mean, that's... 
sort of the best investor in the world. Mm. Um, but if you get your ticket size right and you cut your losses early, that's incredibly important. But, yeah, so certainly averaging up rather than averaging down makes a lot more sense because yeah. you know, average up once you get really comfortable with the management, they start to provide a track record of doing what they say they're going to do. So, yeah, I'd echo those sentiments. I think that's really important. Well, Chris, we did a we did a live show earlier this year and the, one of the traders on the panel uh, said they only hit on 30% of their trades. So, you're, uh, you're smashing him wow. out of the park. Look at that. I look like Chuck and Miller. <laughs> yeah. <also>. That's good. <laughs> so, if we, if we turn to the microcap world today, what are you seeing in the Australian microcap landscape at the moment? Well, right now, there's a huge amount of cap raisings coming through before Christmas. So, it's a real rush. I think there's, like, we're in an overall bull market, but it's a really pessimistic bull market. People are really negative generally on the economic outlook, and that, that's fair enough. But I guess I'm sort of just balancing up that, you know, the broader economy looks pretty weak, you know, leading indicators about whether it's car sales or housing approvals look really soft and general economic growth in Australia and overseas but then interest rates are just so incredibly low and you need to balance those two things up. And, you know, trillions of dollars of negative yielding bond yields around the world, I don't think that's going to attract a lot of investors and the, the money's got to go somewhere. So most people have no idea what's going to happen in the next 12 months or 24 months. I think the economy is going to be soft, but I'm not sure that that's going to be reflected in asset prices just because the cost of money is so cheap. And small caps have been reasonably soft. The big caps... You know, the index funds are having such a, a powerful impact on price at the minute. And generally, you know, the outperformance has been caused by, you know, a, a few large cap names. So there's some pockets of, of froth, like probably the biotech industry and, and healthcare industry in Australia looks a bit frothy uh, or a bit overpriced. But certainly there's not a lot of love for mining at the minute outside of gold stocks. And the microcap space more broadly is... I think reasonably soft. I think people are off tech a little bit, and that's drifted down into small cap ends. So, yeah, I think it's, I'm a reasonably comfortable buyer at the minute. You mentioned a few sectors of the market there. What are some in the micro cap space that you really enjoy sort of digging into? Please don't say mining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, most of the stocks, like I mentioned, they sort of come under sort of various macroeconomic themes. So things like aging demographics, which is um, you know, a huge, a huge trend that's incredibly easy to predict and it's relevant here but relevant in lots of other places around the world as well. Clean air in China, automation, robotics and sort of problems with fiat currencies are, are some of the things that are interesting. And then there may be sort of sector views where you might say something like an MBN doesn't appear to be going all that well and perhaps some of the major providers of those services aren't as innovative as they are in different markets and that might be a, a top-down theme that you look to attack as well. So there's some themes that are interesting and have some good investment ideas under them. Are there any themes that you think are just trash and you reckon the market's got completely wrong? No, but I mean, if you look at like this, the narrative or the story around those themes, it either is really hot or it may get hotter. Like, I don't think aging demographics has really exploded yet as a theme. Certainly the energy metals theme of 2017 around, you know, nickel, cobalt, lithium, graphite, electric cars was a, a theme that that really exploded. Those narratives cause capital appreciation. I guess the inverse is often true, like when you've got a really bad narrative, you know, the price compresses and particularly if you're a yield investor, there are some opportunities that open up 
in that space. If you were to look at, say, retail property now is, is on the nose. Everyone thinks Amazon's going to take over the world, which they are doing in large part. But sometimes those negative stories can create opportunities for investors as well. I'm not an investor in retail property, by the way. It's just an example. Yeah, that's uh, that's the one that I always go to when I think the market is just well overhyping a story. I mean, Target's up 90% this year or something. There's good retail out there if you if you know where to look. Yeah, Adair's had a really good announcement the other day. City Chic has done really, really well. Jagged's going well, you know, as a retailer. So I get a little bit of insight there as well. But yeah, the offering's got to be good and and it needs to be, you know, a business that embraces all the, the technology in many ways is getting rid of a lot of the friction that used to be associated with retail. So Chris, you uh, recently were hosting your own podcast, Masters of Markets, and now you've moved to a more video-based conversation with uh, some of Australia's best public and private investors called Talk Your Book. I'm wondering if there are any sort of lessons or characteristics that you've noticed while doing these interviews that carry across the experts that you're chatting to. Yeah, there are. I think the better the investor, the more comfortable they are being themselves and they don't feel like they've got to pretend to be what an investor should be. I also think there's a bit of a correlation with the better the investor, the more comfortable they are speaking about their mistakes. Mm. I guess their track record allows them to do that. And the really good ones seem to just think about the world a little bit differently. I mean, every time you make an investment, you're effectively saying the market's wrong and you're right. So that's the Jim Grant line that the key to investing is for the market to agree with you later on. So to do that, you've got to be able to think a little bit differently to everybody else because if you didn't, it would, it, it's a lot harder for you to say that the market's wrong and you're right, which is effectively what you're doing every time you, you buy a stock or an investment. Mm. Similar to Bryce's question there, are, are there any key sort of skills or um, you know, I guess tips that you've picked up from, from these interviews with some of Australia's best fund managers that you've then incorporated into your own investing style and process? Oh, I think it's really important to pick a style that suits you. So there's not there's not one right way to invest. There's you know thousands of different ways to invest successfully, but you want to pick a style that suits your particular skill set and your particular risk appetite. I think that's been one of the learnings. It's probably been reaffirmed when when speaking to these different investors. Why do you think it small cap investing is the style that it suits you as opposed to the big end of town, the boring side? <laughs> I love stories. Yeah, and I think. You know, there's the book written, 21 Problems for the 21st Century. The author escapes me. The, the premise of the book is what's the most powerful thing in the world and it's stories. And if you look at, you know, the Bible or the impact of stories on the world, I think it's hard to argue it. So I like them and I've got a really high appetite to risk and I like reading macroeconomic research. So I, I, I guess most of the stuff I'm investing in, I feel I'm almost like a macro investor, but just choosing the least sophisticated counterparty I can find. Mm, mm. So, on that, Chris, when people generally think about investing in sort of macro themes, they generally jump to the big end of town, I guess, and they, you know, go to broad market ETFs and stuff like that. But you're talking about using macro themes and how the world's changing and investing in the smallest of the small companies. What's the interplay between sort of the big end of town and the broader market cycle and small caps? Well, I mean, the big end of town, just there's just not enough liquidity in small caps for them to play in it. So if you're a big uh, fund manager and you like gold, you can't buy a – you might need to invest $50 million bucks in gold if you're managing, you know, a few billion dollars. So hard to do that in a small cap gold explorer or developer. 
you might buy the physical asset or a future or whatever. But I mean, essentially, you know, if the gold price goes up and appreciates, the explorers and developers do well, as do the producers. But generally, the, the riskier the asset, the better it will do when the price appreciates. You know, if the price of gold's going up, you'd, you're much better off being in a high-cost gold producer than a low-cost gold producer because the impact of the rising price is much greater on the high-cost producer than it is on the low-cost producer. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that's sort of a way I look at it. And it, do, it does give you a margin of safety. You know, if you get something in your portfolio that does, does go up four or five times, there's a margin of safety across the, the rest of your decisions in your portfolio in a way. So, Chris, I think we just ticked over 40 minutes. So, we want to thank you for taking the time and uh, talking about microcaps. I think a lot of people it will have sparked an interest in. We like to wrap up with the same three final questions. But before we get there, I've got one, one last one for you. So, yes. as we mentioned, you're still heavily involved in the Carlton Footy Club. And across the world, there are a number of publicly traded sports teams like the Brisbane Broncos in Australia. So, is there any appetite to do a similar IPO for Carlton? <laughs> there is zero. <laughs> zero. You, you should leave um, You are a, uh, what are you? I mean, you're essentially a, an operating unit of the AFL, essentially. So, you've got limited control to grow your revenue. And your cost base is fixed, so I think it's a um, no. That's a that's a big pass from me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so I'd be happy to sell, I'd be happy to sell into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, the first of our final three questions that we always ask is: Do you have any must-read books, investing or otherwise, that you would recommend? Oh yes. You know what I'm reading at the minute, which is really good, is uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear which is about breaking poor habits and forming good habits, but it's got a, a bit of relevance to investing as well. Yeah, nice. Do you want a nice – do you want a quick narrative on, on one of his stories, which I think is useful for investors? Yeah. So he's got – he speaks about an experiment that a university lecturer did at school. So he was, a, he was teaching photography and he split his photography class up into two and he said to half the class – all right, your job is to take as many photos as you can this year. Uh, I don't care about quality. Just go out there and take truckloads. And then he said to the other half of the group, I just want you to take one photo, but I want it to be the very best photo you can possibly do. It's all about quality. I don't want quantity. I just want one brilliant photo at the end of the year. And at the end of the year, all the best or the vast majority of the best photos came from the group that was just out there taking truckloads of photos because they improve their skills so much more than the other group that was just sitting around hypothesising about, well, making a great photo. And I think that's got a bit of a utility for investing. Um, if you want to improve your investing, the best way to do it is to actually invest as opposed to just sitting around talking about it. So that's a, that's a little piece that I uh, – yeah, I, I I quite liked from that book. Couldn't agree more. One of the biggest messages we kind of get across the show is that there's no better way to learn than by actually getting in there and doing it. There's only so much paper trading you can do, but you don't understand, you know, your emotional side and all that sort That's of stuff right. until you've actually got some skin in the game. Yeah, the paper trading is not the same at all. But no. just just know that when you start, you you should be losing money, and if you're not, you're just being lucky rather than smart. <laughs> yeah. In all likelihood, yeah, it's um, true. It's true. Yeah. So, Chris, uh, the second question that we like to ask is, what is your go-to source for investing information? 
Oh, I think Real Vision is the best content I I consume, which is a US based mostly video content. They've got some written content as well. But I spend I mean all day consuming it. I mean Macro Voices is a podcast out of the States. I like all the newsletters from I mean Fred Hickey to Mark Faber to Howard Marks to Ray Dalio to I could go on forever. So all that that sort of broad based stuff. I don't take a lot of notice of broker research reports just because they're sort of rubbish really. They're just designed <laughs> to, to get their keep their clients happy so they can get their corporate advisor fees when that, that company's looking to raise capital next. So I don't really consume much of them. But then I you know I, I use Stock Doctor, which is a quick way to analyze financials of, of companies. So lots of different things. And and then just talking to people as well is um is really useful also. Yeah, we're big fans of Real Vision, and I think I'm joining the dots here. You've just ventured into video yourself, fan of Real Vision. Are you trying to uh, start something here in Australia? Or? <laughs> no, well, I think you'll know if you're a Real Vision fan, Scott Williams was just on Real Vision talking about Paradigm. Have you seen that? No, I haven't yet. So Paradigm, I'm sure you'd realise, is a stock we featured on Talkie Book only a few weeks ago. So it looks like if anyone's following anyone, it's probably Real Vision <laughs> following Talkie Book. Is what, uh, that's what it looks like to me. Um, but, um, I'll, let the, I'll let the other viewers make their own minds up. <laughs> market leaders in video content. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> to wrap up, thinking back to when you received your 1500 bucks and made that first investment, what would be a piece of advice that you perhaps give yourself back then knowing what you know now? Uh, well, if you're investing to make money and you don't know what you're doing, you'd start with an index fund potentially if you've got limited time or then you go to a, a fund manager if you've got a little bit more time to research which funds are, are good funds or what you think are good funds. And if you've got a truckload of time, you can move down the risk curve and do it yourself. But if you're investing to learn, then there's no better way to actually do it yourself and to not you know, the, the finance industry can be quite good at making simple things sound complex. Mm. So do not be put off by the various acronyms or the language people try and use to pretend that it's more complicated than it is. And the industry is not filled with, with geniuses, but it is filled with people that do this thing day after day. And it's that experience that if you can start to, to do that yourself, then, you know, there's no reason why you can't make some money. Awesome advice. I think sort of certainly applicable to everyone listening to the show. So appreciate those words, Chris. And very much thank you for coming on the show today. As we said at the start, third time lucky, but um, very much enjoyed hearing your thoughts on small caps. It's something that we haven't been able to go into detail with any really expert investor uh, along our journey. So appreciate it. We're kind of fanboying over here at the moment. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. And if anyone uh, wants to find out more info about yourself or even talk your book, Masters of Markets, what's the best place to do so? The Chris Judd Invest Channel on YouTube or Facebook, where um, all video content will be put up, or chrisdunninvest.com. Nice. Well, check it out if you're keen to see more of what Chris does. And yeah, Chris, thanks for your time. Thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.